0: This is a live broadcast with a team of talking space on the voice of astronomy, Astronomy FM.
1: One step in this long progress, has been a team effort by us all the way, and we we're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard.
2: The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric
3: of America. We choose the and
4: Ah, that intro brings back good memories. All right, and welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is an extremely special Talking Space Podcast, and this is not live, but this is our look back at one year since we covered the final launch of the Space Shuttle Program and the final launch of Space Shuttle Atlantis, STS-135, exactly one year ago for Astronomy FM. Launch was on July 8th, 2011. And I'm joined by the same people who joined us on that exact day in 2011. So welcome to this special episode, Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
5: Glad to be on board. This is going to be a really fun show, Sawyer. Thanks.
4: Welcome back as well, Mark Ratterman.
2: Couldn't possibly be a year, but hello anyway.
4: I've been thinking the same thing. It's been exactly one year. And a very special welcome back to Gina Herlihy.
6: Oh, thank you, Sawyer. I think it's about as warm today as it was that day in July in Florida.
4: (laughs) That's pretty accurate to say. It was a relatively hot early morning there as launch came around, but of course, launch was one day, and we were there for a couple of days, starting with Launch day minus one is where we will begin, and where we have some clips for you, because we will be going over from L-1 all the way through to launch, and afterwards, with some clips that you might have heard on the live show, as well as some clips that you have never heard before, because we have never released them. So let's get things started, as I mentioned, with L-1, the day before launch, July 7th, 2011. That was quite an interesting day, and we were able to get a couple of really great interviews. So what do you guys remember from the day before launch?
5: One of my fondest memories, Sawyer, is when you were there with me for this one. If I recall exactly, the weather for uh, the uh, remote service structure retract uh, was just, like, lousy. Uh, Mark, if you remember what SDS-134 was like... (laughs) Uh, that night, I think we had a we had a similar situation at 135, where getting the the press out there for for RSS retract was sort of an on again off again thing. Finally, we we got word that uh, RSS retract was was in work, and uh, everybody kind of ran to the buses. And the interesting thing uh, Sawyer that I remember is with you and I, uh, we had one of the the courtesy buses along with a uh, a BBC crew, and we got out there. Good Lord, about 15 minutes before the general press bus showed up, our driver, Pat, who is just absolutely amazing, and, and hats off for, to her for taking care of us, uh, the BBC crew, which was only two people, the reporter and the camera person, and us. And we had about 15 minutes of just, you know, snap time with nobody else there. I mean, that was an awesome—I don't know about you, Sawyer, but that was just a a once-in-a-lifetime awesome thing. Here we were on the eve of the final launch, and here we are on pad 39A, and there's nobody here except the shuttle workers, and— And there were even
4: very few of those. They were still getting back after the rain delay that we had.
5: Right, right. So— you know, it, it was just one of those moments that is just going to just sit in your head for, forever because there was nobody around. All you heard was a lot of wind and and just the, the the sky just slowly clearing up. You know, it still wasn't you know the blue sky still wasn't evident. And uh, we do have some of those photographs up on the the website if folks are interested in going going ahead taking a look at that. But that to me was one of the the, the moments that is just going to stand out in my head. I mean, I was I, I felt so darn privileged. To be there at that at that moment in time and and to try to go ahead and convey to to listeners what that was all like. So that was one of the huge huge things I remember from 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 L minus one. That and and most of the the sleep deprivation experiment that I was about ready to embark on thereafter.
4: That was amazing. I mean, we got there. By the time we got there, retraction had already occurred, which, from what I heard, right. isn't necessarily a bad thing. Is it's right. not the most exciting event and not the fastest, but. We got there, and I can still remember, clearly as day, just turning around that curve, looking dead on at pad 39A, and just seeing Atlantis for the first time, because I had never seen a shuttle that close before in a vertical position. That was just an image that is burned into my head. It was just spectacular. Just the size of it was awe-inspiring, and in fact... I snapped three pictures from inside the car that we were driving in, and one of those is actually on the website. And you can take a look at these pictures that we're referencing at talkingspaceonline.com slash 135.
5: Yeah, you know, again, and it, it was just – that, that's just an image of this big bird that's sitting there, and it's never going to be on that pad again. That was one of the things that really, really sunk in. This was the last time we were seeing this ever. But we made a we made a lot of memories, and I hope we, we conveyed them pretty well to, to the folks that uh, were listening that day.
4: I hope so, too. I mean, it's just a large towering thing, and the bright orange tank just stands out. And it was just – it gave you so much pride in your country to see that that's what you've been doing for the last 30 years is that amazing piece of machinery and just what it's done. It was just spectacular. And difficult to describe. I hope I'm conveying what I'm trying to get out.
2: <laughs> pictures don't do it justice.
4: You don't really get the true scale of it from seeing the pictures. When your entire front windshield of the car that you're in is just filled with space shuttle, it's undescribable.
6: Yeah, I was out there the, at um, retraction, <clears throat> and I was out there while um, day turned to night and for sunset, and I was part of the line of... All of the photographers that were lined up on the gravel crawlerway. So these are the actual rocks that Kennedy Space Center imports in that specially um, compress into dust so the ride to the pad is as gentle as possible for the one mile an hour trip all the way from the VAB to the launch pad. And they lined everybody up in a straight line so you could photograph the shuttle as much as possible and it was just you know it, as much as i had a lot of time to play with the fairly decent camera and adjust all of my camera settings and shutter settings with the changing light and you know and then they illuminate it and they put on the you know the big xenon canon lights i mean it, it's just an it it you can almost sense it's alive from where you are you know it just comes alive when they put those big xenon canons on it and you know, you've got a lot of professional photographers out there, but they're still clicking away like it's the most incredible sight they've ever seen. So you could just tell by the energy of professional photographers. It was, you know, who have one spot to stand in and keep clicking. They were into it for the entire time, even though you're out there, maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes an hour. Nobody was stopping. People just kept clicking, changing lenses, changing settings, taking photos of each other. It's, it's pretty incredible the amount of activity around just that one photo shoot of something that's completely stationary.
4: One other thing from L minus one that I can vividly recall was that every single member of the talking space team was together for the first time that day.
5: Yeah, that was that I, I could have predicted that you know some kind of rip in the space time continuum would, would occur if, if we ever got into the same room. So I, I guess we're you know, no no space time event had occurred, so I guess we're in good shape.
4: So, of course, along with other activities that we got to partake in on L-1, including going out to the launch pad and taking part in some of the press conferences, they had special speakers, a large line of speakers lined up, and I had the pleasure of speaking with two very, very interesting astronauts. One of them was very special to me because, A, I'm friends with his mother, and b I saw him launch on his first and only mission, which was STS-130 aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour in February of 2010. And he was the pilot of that mission, and that's Terry Wirtz. And I got to chat with him for a little bit about his mission with the Cupola as well as his future. You started off in the class of 2000 with NASA, right? Right. How has NASA been different pre- and post-Columbia from when you were originally here to current day?
1: Right. Um, I think the big change post-Columbia was that we realized that we had to be very disciplined in our engineering, very disciplined in our decision-making, and we couldn't just rely on the way things were always done. So just because foam had always come off and hit the shuttle and it was no big deal you couldn't just ignore that you had to actually be disciplined in your engineering approach and uh so i think there that that was one big change and i think everybody realizes that if you've got something to say you need to speak up that's another big thing right you know not letting anything go by right exactly
4: you were officially the last newbie basically to fly on board the shuttle Does that signify anything to you or was it
1: just um it was uh it was good on my flight I was the only rookie on the flight I, there was actually some rookies that flew after me on other missions but it was kind of fun being the new guy because every you know it was lucky for me because I had a very good crew they were fun to be with and then they were able to you know show me the ropes and all the little ins and outs of what I needed to know so your mission delivered the cupola to the International Space Station, which has That's right. obviously been a huge
4: success. Did you ever expect the views from it or the science or the robotics that are being done from it to be what they are now that it's installed? Yeah.
1: It, it's everybody's favorite module. I mean, if you ever, everybody goes up there and they're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this thing is so awesome. Um, I just, I was, I finally looking at the video I brought down. I, have, I haven't had a chance to like look at this video. And so this week I was watching it, and I came across the first window opening, and um, you can see. I'm like, All right, "Are you ready?" And I said, "Jeff Williams, sir." I said, "Hey, Jeff, do you want to do it?" No, 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 you do it. So I did it, and I and I just went, "Wow!" You know, you could see that I, you could see the shock. You know, and it was it was just amazing to see the view out of there. So now everybody who comes back, they're like, "Wow!" You know, it's everybody's favorite place.
4: That's being unique how they are able to open and close the shutters on that. Right. How is that the first time seeing the like the whole shutter movement and
1: seeing it actually working? The shutter is cool. It's really simple. It's just it's a little knob that you rotate and then it turns a gear and then the shuttle you know goes just opens up and then it comes back in. Um, it's important because uh, even though it's mostly a vacuum, there's there's a little bit of stuff out there and it's called atomic oxygen is what's bad. And it, uh, it corrodes stuff, and so you want to keep the windows protected from that. Or when vehicles show up, there, there's always a cargo ship coming or, or one more shuttle. And so you want to protect it from the um, plumes, from the jets, from these rockets that are, you know, visiting vehicles. So, Right. So uh, did you get a chance to actually be on the controls of Endeavour? I did. Um, when we do the docking, the commander flies that. It's manually flown the rendezvous, and then when we do the undocking, the pilot gets to do that. So I got to fly that. And uh, uh, during landing, the commander flies most of it, but he gave me the. To, I got to fly a little bit around the circle. We fly the circle to get lined up on final. So the hack, right? the hack, exactly. Yeah. So you did you end up also flying also the, uh, the
4: rotation around the shuttle afterwards,
1: the... the, the um, yes, the fly around, yeah. So I backed out to 600 feet, and then I flew a big circle around the station like that. And then I did a, a manual burn, and I, I flew this away from the station.
4: Was it distracting looking at
1: back at the station and your addition to the station while you're trying to do that as well? Uh, I was I was mainly cramped in a little corner guarding the controls, to make sure nobody bumped it, while everybody else was pressed against the window going ooh and ah. <laughs> so my you know I wish I could I, I was like hidden in the corner trying to make sure nobody bumped in the control stick. What was your part in getting the cupola actually installed? On the um, my I was I was like our main robotics guy, <coughs> so I took the. Uh, The big arm, we grabbed the module, pulled it off, and then did some automatic maneuvers to get it ready, and then manually docked it in there. And that was a big, really big part of our mission because it didn't fit, and we hadn't tested it on the ground. So we had to undo, take away some boxes and rig things, and then... We were hoping that when it went in, it wouldn't get wedged against something in the way, and it worked out, but it, we, we were a little bit nervous about that, um, because the things didn't quite fit exactly the way we hoped to, but it worked out in the yeah. end, so...
7: Right.
4: So, you're an Air Force guy, right? I am. So, uh, how was the flying
1: how flying the planes uh, similar and different at the same time? From a from shuttle? Yeah. Flying in space is totally different, um, because... In an airplane, you're controlling it with air, right? It's an airplane, and so the surfaces move, and you're kind of moving through this fluid. In space, you're just floating there, and you're firing rockets to bang, you know, you start pitching, and bang, you stop, and so it's that's different. And then if I want to go to you, and I just point straight at you, if I speed up, then as I start, I'm gonna start going this way, but then I'm gonna start climbing. And then I'm going to go up here, and then I'm going to slow down, and then I'm going to come down, and I'm going to do that. So you have what's called orbital mechanics, and so in order to go directions, you have to go the other way and let gravity kind of take you over there. So it, it's a totally different way to fly. I would imagine in so. Space.
4: So now that the shuttle program winding down, what's your role going to be at NASA? Uh,
1: well, I'm a robotics branch chief for now, and then uh, I'm going to in a month I'm going to. Um, give that up Another guys taking over i'm gonna to go to school for a semester go to business school for a semester and then come back and i'll still be in the astronaut office waiting to do a station flight yeah. all the best of luck to you thanks for good to finally meet you man
4: same so that was again sts-130 pilot terry verts
5: i thought it was interesting to the way he was talking about um the difference between flying in space and then flying a, a jet aircraft you know a day uh you know, and and the nuances in between the two. I thought that was kind of, kind of, kind of interesting.
4: Yeah, that's always a neat one. (laughs) Okay. Another astronaut who I got to talk to, it was actually quite difficult to get her because they kind of accidentally put down her schedule incorrectly and she ran a little late. And in doing so, didn't have that much time for me, but she was kind enough rather than being able to go to a quiet room, standing in the middle of the press office there to give me a quick little bit of an interview. And, uh, We'll hear from astronaut Katie Coleman and about her stay on board the station, as well as a very special person who she got to collaborate with while up there. I'm here with uh, Katie Coleman, veteran of uh, STS 73 and 93, as well as a member of the Expedition 26 and 27 crews. Uh, thank you for joining us, Katie.
7: I'm happy to be here.
4: I was following your entire mission aboard the ISS, and one thing that I found interesting was your flute playing on board the ISS. So. What brought you to bring the flute on board the station?
7: Well, you know, I, I play. N- not every day, all day. You know, and I've never been. Um, I, it's just that I, I love to play. And I play with a group of people here at NASA and. and I I just thought, you know, for six months, it's it's what I like to do when I have time. And it just, there's a way that it makes me feel that I I really like. And so when I figured out it was physically possible to bring it, it uh, it was easy to do. And then when I figured out that it was physically possible to bring some clues for other people, that made it even more fun. So how did it come about that you got to play with Jeff Tull as well? So when I figured out that I could get some flutes, not only, it's easy actually to bring something up, it's harder to bring it home, but when I figured out that I had basically enough, you know, allocation of space and volume that I could bring flutes back, I started to think about who I could, and, I, and I've and i always loved his music, and I love the fact that he brought the flute to a whole world of people that never thought about the flute. And I play more improvisationally myself, and so I've, I've always loved his Music and I found a friend of mine uh, got in touch with him for me and found him and put us together by email. And which I thank him for, Dana, Dana Steele did that. And he has just been the nicest correspondent and actually so helpful in terms of just equipment and what's important and how to what to play. And, and you know, and he, he really had the great idea of how to do our do it together. So one thing that's interesting is that you've flown on both
4: uh, Soyuz with the TMA-20 as well as the shuttle twice. So what was the major comparison for you between flying on board the Soyuz and uh, the shuttle? Well there's of course a
7: lot of technical differences um, to me there's an emotional difference and being on the shuttle it's amazing to be on the launch pad on your back and you know part of this big huge heavy stuff lifting off into space and then when you get to space you're still inside a pretty large spacecraft. I mean it's an it's airplane sized thing whereas in the Soyuz after all that launching is done. There's just the three of us in a tiny, tiny, tiny little capsule, and its I felt very close to the Earth. I felt close to space. I felt like I was about three inches away from space, and that was a really pretty intimate uh, experience, really, to feel like three people, not just some big ship, but our own little capsule, or mean? So it must have been nice to actually get to
4: stretch out a little bit once you got on board the station after the Soyuz. It's true. You know, we do have what
7: we call the bayo the Bortevoi um, yeah, like, sec the living compartment. Uh, and so it's pretty big. I mean, somebody as tall as Paolo can not probably stretch, but well, I can stretch in either compartment. <laughs> well, you're talking about the emotional aspect. You flew twice aboard the space shuttle Columbia. So
4: how did that affect you when after the Columbia accident in 2003?
7: Well, Sarah, I, I actually don't identify so emotionally with each of the shows in that I, I just think that the fact that we get people off this planet into space, that's really the important thing. And so when it was Columbia, I was I was devastated about the people who are friends and colleagues who have the same dreams that, that I do. Um, and at the same time... Um, it wasn't about the shuttle itself. I mean, that sounds a little callous. I mean, it, 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 it wouldn't have mattered to me if it was Atlantis or Endeavour, any of them. It's a precious vehicle that carries us off the planet. And to lose one of them is, and, and, but, I mean, to lose the people is the biggest thing, and then to lose one of them is just devastating. What did you take
4: away from this uh, long-duration space station mission? What will you take back from this state, from this mission that will stick with you the most?
7: Mostly that you know, I lived in this place, in this space station which is, you know, ready to go. Equipment is there, people are trained, we've got the power, we have the data, we have the experiments, and all we need to do is just keep doing them. And so I was so excited to be a part of that effort. I also realized that not everybody knows what kind of place we have up there. And so I think it's part of my mission to try to make people understand that it's an amazing thing that this space shuttle has done. Using them space sh- the space shuttles, we have built an outpost in space. And what we learned from that, I won't be able to tell you, but I can just tell you it'll be considerable. Thank you so
4: much, and okay. good luck rushing around again. Thanks a so lot. So that was very nice of Katie. In- Amidst all that rush to stop and talk a little bit, and I found the most interesting part that I really wanted to talk about why I asked it first was about her flute playing on board the space station and her collaboration with Jethro Tull, and I thought that was quite an interesting thing.
5: Yeah, that was one of the cool parts of that uh, particular uh, expedition stay. The other thing too is her commentary about the Soyuz and how she felt that you know you're you're three inches away from space and all that. It kind of just drives the point home as far as you know how tight the quarters are on board on board Soyuz, but also you know how how fragile the vehicle really really is, and um, it, it it really really just. Uh, I don't know. Words fail me on that one. I I really have to digest that one for a minute.
4: It's kind of a scary thought. (laughs) Now, a couple of other interviews were conducted that day that we don't exactly have time for today, but Gene can give you a little preview of one interview that he did that we will play on a very future show.
5: Yeah, we spent some time with uh, Bob Seek, who uh, was essentially the uh, uh, first uh, shuttle launch director. But uh, his uh, history goes far back into the Gemini program, and uh, I had about a half hour with the gentleman, and unfortunately we don't have time for it here, but we will be playing that out on a a future show.
4: Indeed, so that brings us to the end of L-1, a long day at the Cape, and after toil and hard work on Mark's part as well as his wife Mary to get everything set up, launch day came. And along came our broadcast of the final space shuttle mission on Astronomy FM, which you can also hear Talking Space simulcast Friday evenings. And then for 24 hours afterwards, every couple of hours. So, launch day came around, we got on the air, and we began broadcasting. Now, launch was scheduled for about 11.25 a.m. Eastern Time on that date. And everything was going well according to plan. Weather was looking quite like it wasn't going to happen, and at the T-minus nine-minute poll, they actually gave the go for launch. We later learned that weather conditions were not entirely green, but it was so marginal that they said, it's the final mission, let's let it go on time. We didn't know that at the time, we were just all shocked that they gave it the go. (laughs) But we started the broadcast at 10.30 a.m., weather-wise, originally that morning it was 30% go. Later they had upped it to 60% chance of weather allowing a launch, which was not, you know, the, the best forecast out there possible. But as one person had said, they had had 90% chance of go and have scrubbed, and they've had 30% chance of go and have launched. And that ended up being the case. Or was it? a little glitch came in at T-minus 31 seconds, and here it was as it was reported by myself and the team at T-minus 31 seconds on launch day. 35,
2: 33. T-minus okay,
1: 31 seconds due to a failure. And we have a failure. A lot sequencer. We have
0: the three switches. Go ahead. We need uh, guys to go do the verification for the LCC,
6: please.
2: All right, CMAX. Yes, CMAX. The so LCC says so we need to verify using a camera, and we're
4: positioning camera 62 right now. Okay, let us know gonna the 62 is going over.
1: You can verify LCC for GBA retract,
4: please. Just so you know, those are the well, actual
2: controllers you're hearing. hearing. One second. Well, we put a verification that the GBA has fully retracted. This is CMEK. verify.
4: Uh, retracted. It. it appears as okay. if there was a minor issue of something fully retracting, so they're, they just confirmed that, so they should restart shortly.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That's correct. All right. And STD. An STD, STD, concur. They set aside the requirements of
5: GST-13
0: prepackage. I'm go. Okay. I'm copy. And what's that? Yes, sir. I heard all uh, that. Concur. Press on. All right. Very good. An STD, STD. Yes, sir. Yes,
1: sir. I need concurrence. GLS The ask clearly hold, please. Very good. You have concurrence?
0: So, happy that it's at work. Thank you. No one
5: has complete. Yes. Yeah, so Eric, I can remember that. We were, um, I was standing there with uh, some, uh, a group of individuals, I guess, and um, uh, had uh, a few others, you know, one other individual with me at the time and uh, we're kind of wondering, like, oh crud, what's going on? And it was actually, uh, if I recall, the beanie cap that uh, was giving an erroneous signal, saying it had not moved out of the way, and in reality, it had. And uh, the, the reason for the hold was they had to make sure that that uh, you know that that thing had moved out of the way. It usually covers the um, uh, the external tank, and uh, it's removed just a few seconds, 30 you know, thirty thirty seconds before it launched and, and moved out of the way. In this case, it did move out of the way, but sensors were still saying that it's it's in place and had not not moved to the uh, to the retract position. And uh, it was an interesting story where um, you know uh, I guess the uh, the commander of the of, of the flight is, is trying to go ahead and see out the window and confirm that the thing is actually out of the way. So that was the 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 the. the, the bit of a holdup. up. You know, there was, there was old Chris Ferguson trying to confirm the whole thing, so.
4: He had no idea what was going on, in fact. I no. spoke with him at a later date um, when I met the entire crew and I was asking them about that and they said, we as the media knew more than they did. They had no idea what the hold was because they just used closed circuit cameras to check it out, saw it was in position and gave it the go. But, I was at the mic the whole time broadcasting that and I had no clue what was going on. I had said that I was going to say absolutely nothing until it had launched And then there was just silence, and I had no NASA TV feed other than the audio, so I had no video, everybody else was totally away from where I was watching the launch, so I was going off of little things I was hearing in the background, trying to figure out what the heck was actually going on. That was scary, having no information, I had no internet, I had no video, and I made the correct call somehow. So anyway, the clock hit T-0, and they lifted
1: off. Go for main engine start. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. All three engines up and burning. 2, 1,
8: 0, and liftoff. the final lift off of Atlantis. Shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. And
4: there it goes. The shuttle is cleared. It's doing its roll program, which means it's rolling to the other side so that it may get onto...
2: And we'll hear the sound here in a second.
4: What you're hearing now on the microphone is the actual audio. As it reaches us at the press site, it's on a delay, so you'll hear it getting really loud. There it goes. The crackling that you hear, if you can even hear it, the crackling that you're hearing is actually sonic booms as the sound actually gets past that point. We're at T-plus 30. It is through the clouds here. Which means we have just very little sight of it, but you can still feel and hear it as it climbs its way to orbit. Everything is on track and working fine. The final space shuttle mission is underway, and Atlantis is heading with the meetup to the International Space Station. So all the best of luck to the crew, and we'll keep you up to date as it goes. And boy, what a beautiful liftoff that was, was that not?
5: uh gina you were you were there for one thirty two which I thought was a little bit prettier because of the 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 cloud cover and but you were also there for um for obviously you were there for one thirty five just just your thoughts a little bit as far as the two the two. I have my own ideas, but I'd like to hear yours
6: well gina i've I've had the privilege of being at multiple launches, so I'm trying to remember the sky conditions for one thirty two I do believe they're probably more blue than they were for 135. You know, at this point, it's July and it's Florida. And I I do remember the sky being just one of those days that was so bright, it was almost just gray. So, yeah, I would say um, in terms of the visual, um, of course, there's nothing really like a night launch, which is an incredible sight, but... In terms of the visual, it did seem that we lost uh, – because, you know, you try to follow it with your eyes just as long as possible. It seems like we lost the visual of it pretty quickly. Um, it was a like 134, which got lost in the clouds fast. But still, what, what knocked me over always, and especially that day, really just seemed the sound. I just think everybody – Um, held their breath. Because it was such a last minute call for the people uh, down on the site at Kennedy Space Center, people didn't really realize if it was going to launch until the last minute. And then you heard just sort of literally out of the bushes a little bit, seven, six, five. And I think people realized, oh my God, this is happening. And people went sort of from, hey, do we get another day? Is there another chance at like having the shuttle on the pad to, oh, this is happening. So I just think very quickly, things got very quiet and people really tried to take in everything that they possibly could as fast, you know, as fast as you can process it, which is sometimes difficult. It seems very surreal.
5: When that thing finally went off, um, it was, you know, quite a, quite an emotional moment. Um, a friend of mine, <laughs> friend of mine, Stephanie Collins, who is, who is, uh, associated with Think Geek, She, uh, uh, she was there for one one thirty, STS one thirty four and STS one thirty five, and and her her thoughts because she was there for both launch attempts, you know, uh, for one thirty four and and her 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 thoughts were, you know, Atlantis was like, all right, come on, just get out of my way here, let me get out of here and, and take off, and her and 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 uh, and Debra was like, oh, come on, my left APU hurts, leave me alone, you know. So, but that was that was the the going joke, but um, it was just a. a, a a sort of to see that last bird go and to be there when that last bird went—it it was just such an emotional feeling. And and Sawyer, I think think some of the interviews we're going to play in a little bit uh, will will kind of sort of lend to that emotion. And uh, we were all feeling it that day. Um, you know, the the difference was that you know Mark and and you and you Sawyer and Eugenia—we all had to get back in front of a few. <laughs> as we later learned, about uh, 250,000 people um, to, uh, to to kind of talk a little bit more. But um, uh, we had to put all that aside and, and plug through. And that was kind of tough. It's tough to do, but uh, we managed to, uh, to pull that off.
4: Somehow, yes, we did. So launch came, and we broadcast the entire launch live on Astronomy FM all the way through. And then came the very fun part afterwards, which was talking to the people about the launch. Now, some of these people had seen four or five launches before. Some of them had never seen any launches before. And it was really fun just to talk with all of them and to get their different perspectives. And we've picked a couple of our favorites here that we want to play for you guys in case you didn't hear them. Because this was an hour and a half long of extra interviews that we conducted after the mission had launched and we had ended our coverage with our radio affiliates around the world. So where do we want to begin with Gene? Who do we think we want to hear from first?
5: I think we begin with people who have never seen this thing before and to just get the, the feeling of uh, how how it affected them and you know just sort of get that that feeling of magic that was that was out there that was kind of sort of permeated through the entire entire group and also that 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 emotion. I mean there was a lot of there were a lot of tears running around there between you know some you know members of the of the press but also some members of the NASA tweet up and a lot of other other folks that were there that had you know worked on on the shuttle over the years and and just saw this last bird go and uh why don't we go ahead and talk to uh to a couple of folks that had not seen this before?
4: I agree I think the first person that we talked to is Somebody who really conveys, we were talking about this just recently, uh, the emotion was just out there, and everybody was emotional. So I think first person that we're going to hear from is Tina Canali, who is a New Jersey local who we got to speak with.
7: Hi, Sawyer. I'm Tina. I'm at TinaCan25 on Twitter. And I've just witnessed history. <laughs> yep. I am uh, very, very speechless right now. So...
4: What were your thoughts on the
7: launch? If you epic. can find words. Absolutely.
9: Epic.
7: I've been waiting my whole life to see something like this. My entire life to see something like this. I mean, to see a shuttle launch. I, I watched the shuttle since I was a little girl. So, so this my, was your first launch. This was my first launch. This is my first time on the Space Coast. And uh, I've been blubbering ever since launch. So uh,
4: were you expecting it to be like that? Like, What shocked you the most? about seeing the launch for the first time compared to what you normally see on TV? Oh, the
7: flash. The flash, the rumble. I can feel it in my bones. I've never felt anything like that before. You know,
4: everybody's chest always seems to vibrate and it's... My chest,
7: my feet, my whole body. Like, I felt it in my bones and I'll continue to feel that. I will never forget this feeling.
4: It's such a spectacular event to see the shuttle, and uh, you know, you've know you grown up with the shuttle, so what was it like being there for not just any mission, but the final shuttle flight and final launch?
7: I'm honored. I'm honored. I feel absolutely lucky that, that I even got to be here.
4: You could just hear the emotion as she was speaking, and as the rest of the interview went on, it concluded very shortly after, it, it was very tough for all of us at that point
5: yeah that was a tough one uh, there were a lot of people running around around like that there was one gentleman uh, Alex uh, Alex Shemp, I believe his name is and uh, he uh he's a big bear of a guy and he was just reduced to he was just reduced to tears I had offered him to to take a spot too, you know to to sit down and, and talk about what his thoughts were he just could not do it he was just absolutely um totally overcome with an emotion and, and, and a lot of people were a lot of people were um, at that point uh, you know a lot of first timers why don't we go ahead and play one of the other other ones Sawyer that uh, we had
4: I have a feeling I know exactly who we can talk to and he has a very unique perspective on launch because unlike everybody else who we spoke to with the exception of one person we'll talk about later everybody we spoke to was American and we had one person from overseas from the United Kingdom so I have a feeling we'll hear from Jack Dearlove next.
8: Uh, my name's Jack Dearlove. Uh, it's at Jack Dearlove. I'm one of the tweeters here. First time launch.
4: <laughs> so it was your first time launch. So what was your reaction to finally seeing Atlantis go right off the pad like that?
8: Well, there's, there's literally no words that could possibly describe what I've seen today. It's, it's so bright. It's so loud. You know, there's no way of actually putting it into context.
4: I, it's really hard to describe it. it. I know it's not easy to do, but... Um, so as a first launch, what did you see that surprised you, you know, that you wouldn't expect from what you'd normally see on
8: TV? Well, I'd seen the coverage of a couple launches, and, you know, so I kind of knew yeah, almost what to expect, and I knew it'd be loud, and I knew it'd be very bright. But it was it was kind of a case of just taking it all in and we had this horrendous moment with the hold at five seconds which i i still don't know actually why we did that that you know the, my heart was literally in my mouth at that point you know just hoping that it would actually you know take off on time or we'll take off today
4: how do you think the space shuttle is viewed over in europe and uh, their view of the end of the program as well
8: oh it's very interesting i mean my personal view is that i think um been doing the tweet up and kind of talking to people about what the space shuttle does and what the international space station does there's very much a feeling of actually we're not necessarily quite sure um what we do and uh, you know what they both do in the uk because maybe we don't have a kind of a direct involvement with you know the human space flight program um i was at the the uk space conference on monday and talking about kind of which was created by the the newly created uk space agency uh kind of talking about what uk space should do and Part of that is, you know, part of that is actually making sure the public actually knows how much of an involvement the UK industry has within space flights. The UK does a lot of uh, satellite, small satellite stuff. Um, it also does a lot of kind of quite, it's niche stuff. It's not, you know, sending a man on the moon, you know, that kind of stuff. But fingers crossed, uh, we've got a guy called Major Tim Peak who is uh, an ESA astronaut. He's in the training with the uh, ESA astronaut corps at the moment. Hopefully, at some point in the next ten years, you know, we'll see him lifting off on a Soyuz. Going to the ISS. So
4: that European perspective, that one line that really was the reason I wanted to pick this clip was that him saying that they don't necessarily know what the two vehicles actually do over there.
5: Yeah, and I think that's that's sort of a, a that's sort of our fault. Um, we're not doing we, we back then, I guess, we're, and maybe we still aren't uh, doing such a hot job and in, in, in trying to transmit what what the shuttle program was all about and what uh the iss is is really doing up there and we've got to work a little harder at it but uh it was good to hear you know the excitement in 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 jack's voice and and uh and just to just to hear how how you know how he perceived this this launch and yeah you see it on television but how different it really is to actually be there
4: We've spoken with a couple people who have not seen the launch, and I think we need to get the other side of it now for people that have seen launches before, because each of us here had seen a launch prior to STS-135. Am I correct?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I've seen my share uh, for sure, and I know know, some members here have also seen their share. Gina, you sure have. (laughs) You're probably probably the the grizzled veteran out of all of us, actually.
6: Yeah, maybe. I think seven or eight, I guess, which... Probably isn't a lot for the diehards.
4: I've seen two launches, STS-130, which is a night launch, and 135, which was a day launch. Now let's speak to a couple of other people besides us, and we can talk about our opinions on seeing the second launch in a little bit, but let's hear from a couple of people on their opinions of seeing another launch on top of one they've seen previously. And we'll start with a previous tweet-up attendees, since there was the STS-135 tweet-up going on as well. And let's start with Dr. Karen James.
10: Um, I'm still pretty emotional about it, actually. Um, It was just a few minutes ago, I think. (laughs) Um, Although time kind of tends to slow up and slow down and speed up a little in weird ways. Um, The whole thing is just, you know, it's powerful. It's powerful emotionally. It's powerful physically when the sound waves hit you. It's... um, powerful because this is the last launch it's all just overwhelming and i'm still feeling that just coursing through my veins right now have you seen any other launches before yes i i came out when mike barrett launched aboard sts 133 in february uh discovery and i was part of the the nasa tweet up um, for that launch and this time i'm part of the just regular media
4: (laughs) so uh, could you try even to compare the two launches to each other
10: Well, they were both daytime launches, so there's not too much different there. The weather was clear for Discovery. Um, the, The biggest difference that's coming to me right now is that Discovery was scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. We waited, I think, 115 days from the scheduled launch to the day it actually launched. We left Florida. We came back to Florida. We had so many disappointments over and over and over again. And so the build-up to it was just enormous, and it happened, and I had a friend on board, so it was really powerful. This one just went off so smoothly. Everything went perfectly. The weather cleared, there were no problems, no delays. And it happened. I almost couldn't believe it was happening. And then suddenly it was over. I thought we might be coming back here to the press site a few days in a row like we did with Discovery. Um, so those are my thoughts on kind of how the two are different. I, and, uh, again, one of the big differences is when you know someone on board, as I did for the Discovery launch, that just changes everything.
5: Just to interject, the the uh, person that uh, Dr. Karen James was talking about was, uh, was uh, Mike Barrett. Uh, Dr. Karen James leads uh, the uh, the Beagle Project, which is a group trying to go ahead and rebuild uh, Charles Darwin's HMS Beagle. And uh, Mike Barrett just reached out to her one day and said, "Yeah, I'd like to be, you know, help you guys out in any way I can." So uh, Mike Barrett's also associated with that project. Uh, but um, it was kind of interesting to hear uh, Dr. James talk about the two different launches and. Yeah, you know, we all remember what happened with STS 133 with the ground umbilical connector plate and a few other other little little glitches here and there with with some of the insulation and so on. So that took a little time to to clear up and uh, only a and couple find out of months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, you know, 133 finally did fly, um, and then here we were, uh, just a few short months later. Uh, talking about the final flight and uh, how smooth really that final flight was. It just seemed like the last three Atlantis missions went like clockwork. Uh, 129, 132, and and this one, uh, they just seemed to they just seemed to um, want you know the the bird just seemed to want to go and get the job done.
4: The next person who we got to talk to who had seen a launch previously was Jeff Burden, who was also with the Almost Rocket Science podcast, who we've helped him out, and he's helped us out as well in the past.
3: So let's hear his thoughts on it. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeff Bergen. I uh, do Almost Rocket Science, so I know many of you uh, here, at least the talking space crowd, so that's really cool. It's nice to finally meet you all.
4: In fact, I've never met you as well, so it's a pleasure, by the way. I,
3: I think it's still funny that you haven't all met each other until yesterday. So
4: Yeah, we've never met each other, the four of us. All together at the same time, so this is the first. But uh, let's head to you. What did you think of the launch? I mean, what was your reaction to that?
3: You know, when you see a launch like that, so close, and um, it wasn't my first one being this close, but the last one being there again, it you don't you really can't formulate words for a while. Um, it takes some time to think about it. Uh, you know, um, the shuttle was conceived before i was conceived and uh at the same time you know uh it first flew when i was three years old so um it's pretty exciting to know that i grew up with this program i grew up making legos in the shape of it uh, no matter what color they were but uh seeing this launch up close feeling it uh, really experiencing it um it was exciting at that moment and then after everything is over you, you feel that sadness that bittersweetness come back over you real emotion come up i mean we all shed some tears i think here today
4: i dare. i think we all shed a little bit of tears that day
5: (laughs) i think we all did we're all fighting those back all right so we've heard a little bit from
4: the people who had seen a launch previously and i think now might be an interesting time for us to do a little bit of a comparison between some of the launches that we'd seen if we can compare how STS-135 stacked up to some of the other missions. I know we talked a little bit about the cloud cover, but what else did you guys think in comparing these to any previous launches that you've seen?
6: There was a certain amount of finality around it, which was hard to swallow. Um, Launches, to me, had become social events. um, Opportunities to take some photographs, meet some very cool people you know, this was it, you know, I mean, it it, it left you really kind of hanging at the end. I mean, for the astronauts, obviously, the mission had just started, but, f- you know, any other launch, you know, I, I've been privileged to see them from different locations around Kennedy Space Center. Um, um, I'd seen one from the top of the Astronaut Hall of Fame building, and that was a, a night launch, and that was truly incredible, but this launch i mean it was that was it i mean it, it was emotional for everyone there and launches have always been emotional because I, like everyone has said in the clips i don't think you really can truly prepare yourself for the experience of being that close but i don't think anybody walked away from that 135 and was not affected it was truly um a moment in history when the shuttle basically you know, when the, the sound wave washed over you and people started to make their own sounds at that moment. And it was like, oh, my God. And the tears and the it was it was almost grief. It was like you had to mourn it. You know, it was it. It was done. And, and that was tough. For I, I, It was it was tough to be a part of. And it was um, tough to watch.
2: Um, no particular memories about the launch. Uh, I definitely favor the STS 129 launch over anything other than STS 1, probably, of the four that I've seen.
4: You don't remember much from 135. No would you be able to compare STS 135 to STS 1, possibly?
2: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I was about eight miles away for Columbia's first first flight of the program, and you know, at the press site for 135. And, uh, you know, to me, 135 was just a typical shuttle launch, and I really didn't notice that much about it.
4: That's probably the most unique perspective I've heard from anybody on this who had seen launches before, that it wasn't anything
2: special. Didn't really have time to think about it, to be honest. Wow.
4: For me, uh, this was my first day launch. I'd seen STS-130, which was supposed to be the last night launch of the program, which ended up being STS-131. However, it's just something amazing because usually on the night launch that I saw, night turned into day. This one, I didn't know what to expect, how day could turn into day. But what happened was day turned into blinding brightness, and to me that was something very unique. It went from blinding and then turning night into day to just blinding and then it's gone. I can remember about a three- or four-second glimpse of it before the tent that I was underneath started to block it, of just seeing flame and then the bright orange tank and an outline of the shuttle, and then it was gone. That was something amazing.
5: Yes, sir, the way you put that, that's um, the way I i try to describe the, the light to people. And uh, uh, I recall when I was at the STS-129 tweet-up, Beth Beck telling everybody, don't wear your sunglasses. Don't try to, you know, try to take it all in. And, and above all, try to keep the cameras away.
4: Uh, we do have some launch pictures, though, that a sixth member of our team took for us, my father. He was yes. up on the stands and took a picture, a couple of pictures of launch, and those again, dot com slash 135.
5: Again, I wanted to 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 try to... to to enjoy the launch, and and I guess enjoy it meaning to just take it all in, and to, to really try to absorb that, that particular moment, you know, as Gina so so well described. Um, for 135, it, you know, I, I had you know, certain folks around me, and um, I guess we were all just trying to take it in and knowing that this there was an air of finality, at least with me anyway, that this was it. And you know, I've I've seen folks that have gone to you know a lot of the 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 uh, unpiloted launches and so on. This is different, knowing that there there are there are people on board this thing as it, as as it's ascending. It, it's a, it adds a very different context to the whole thing, and really drives the point home how how just brave and how how courageous this whole effort really really is. That that man is is you know cutting the. The coils to a place that he's evolved in, and is is trying to go off and in, in, into the stars, to other pla- to other places, and where he has not been. But um, as a friend of mine was fond of saying, um, I was trying to go ahead at that moment and make a memory, and I I hope I had had succeeded.
4: Now we have two very special interviews that we want to end it with here, and these are not from launch attendees, but these are from. NASA and other agency employees, and they gave us some really interesting insights into what's going on, both of these currently actually relating to the future as well as the present, and I think we'll begin more with more relative present than future, and that was someone who joined us on our live show, veteran of two space shuttle flights, STS-74 and STS-100, which brought up the Canadarm to the space station, And he will also be flying on Expedition 34, as well as commanding Expedition 35, launching November of 2012, this year. And that was Canadian Space Agency astronaut Chris Hadfield. So let's begin with an interview that we have with him. Right now we have a very special guest who is uh, a veteran of two shuttle flights and will be going up to the International Space Station very shortly. Uh, So joining us now is Commander Chris Hadfield. So... uh, Thank you so much for coming and talking with us today.
0: Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. What a great day to be at the Kennedy Space Center.
4: It really is. It was a beautiful launch. And uh, you've flown twice on uh, the shuttle. and uh,
0: Including Atlantis. So, yeah. Yep. So
4: how was it to see your go on the final flight?
0: Uh, it was near miraculous today. Uh, everything was against us. Um, we had... Uh, huge programmatic troubles, convincing ourselves that we could even launch this last shuttle without a rescue ship. We uh, had to get smart enough and brave enough after Columbia to launch again. We had to fight terrible weather. Uh, We had all sorts of political obstacles to overcome. Um, And just a few seconds before launch, we had a, a tactical problem. And yet we worked through every one of those and launched and sent Atlantis to space. And to me, that encapsulates the whole space program. We take something that is right on the edge of impossible and make it happen. It's it's uh, it's near miraculous.
4: It truly is. And um, on one of your missions on uh, STS-100, you actually brought up a very important piece to the International Space Station, bringing up Canadarm2. So... How is it now seeing Canadarm2 and work and all the amazing work that it's doing after
0: bringing it up there? The real measure of a good tool is if it can uh, surpass its original design. If it can do things for you that you just never really thought it could. The uh, the Canadarm that is on the shuttle that flew now 90 times has done that in spades over and over and over again. And then Canadarm2 that, that came up on my second shuttle flight, that I went outside on spacewalks to bolt together, has done the same thing. It... Uh, it has built the International Space Station piece by piece, incrementally, like a huge uh, Meccano set or a big Lego thing. And um, and we are now operating the Canadarm from the ground a lot of the time. We've found a way to safely operate a huge, complex, seven-jointed uh, robot arm from the ground and do it safely. Uh, we've moved it around for spacewalks. We have we can grab the whole space shuttle with that arm and move something that's 100,000 kilograms. It's... It's uh, been a great um, example of the type of thing that, uh, that smart, dedicated people can build and then another group of really operationally minded people can use to do things that are right on the edge of, uh, of impossible.
6: Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming mission on the ISS next year?
0: Uh, I've been training for about uh, three years already, and there's another 17 months away. Um, We will uh, climb into the Soyuz rocket ship in Baikonur, Kazakhstan, uh, out on the steps of Kazakhstan. And uh, I'll be sitting in the left seat, which means I'm sort of like the pilot of the Soyuz. And uh, it'll take about the same length of time as the shuttle has, uh, about 10 minutes to get to orbit or a little less, and then about two days to get to the space station. And then we'll be on the space station for six months. Uh, halfway around the sun, you know, from one side of the solar system to the other, and uh, running all those huge laboratories, uh, keeping the health of the station, space station up, using the cannon arm to grab the uh, resupply ships as they come up. And also, for the last three months there, I'll, I'll be the commander of the space station. So uh, the responsibility, however weightless it will be, will fall on my shoulders while I'm up there, uh, the lives... Of the people, and the uh, the world's space station uh, will be under my command. So, so there's a lot of preparation, a huge amount of uh, technical uh, challenge to it, but also a, a great personal satisfaction to be in a position to do this at this stage of my astronaut career and at this stage of my life.
4: Are you looking forward to being up on the station and actually getting to work hand in hand or candid-arm Canada Arm with Canadarm with? Uh, the device that you actually brought up on one of your previous missions.
0: Uh, yeah, I've I've worked uh, with the two arms. When I was on my last flight, it, w- it was pretty interesting. We actually reached out and held something with Canadarm One, and then picked it with Canadarm Two. So it was the first handoff in space. And while we were doing that, the main computers on the space station had all failed, and the station had lost complete control over its systems. And it was only the shuttle. Uh, using its primitive computers that kept the station pointed the right way, and we had to move the arm in the most primitive, basic fashion possible as we did the handoff. But uh, but we accomplished it. We worked through that problem as well. So uh, using Canadarm two on my next flight to to uh, grab satellites out of the sp- out of space, out of the sky, to uh, hand things off to the other Canadarm, to the Dexter uh, two-handed arm that's up there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I work in an international program, but, of course, I take great pride in the Canadian components of it, being being one of the Canadian components myself.
6: Amanda, can you just give us any indication, how do you prepare for being off Earth for six months and away from everyone you know and love for such a long time?
0: Um, The astronaut life is one of training and preparation. It's not one of space flight. Uh, I've been an astronaut for 19 years. I've been in space for 21 days. So your life is a life. Of training, and most of your training doesn't happen where your family lives. So, I spend my life already away from home, uh, training, working in isolation, working in uh, Star City, Russia, in uh, Scuba, Japan, in Sevastopol, in Germany, all over the world. So, in fact, the six months on orbit is, is the icing on that cake. Um, you are doing what all the training was for. Your family can look up, they know where you are, <laughs> and we have uh. We have sort of like and, uh, Skype on board. We can we can call our family pretty much any time, and uh, we can set up video conferences with them. I can email with them anytime, and that that's pretty much what it is like right now. So, so for me, uh, the the, uh, the life is is all part and parcel, including the space flight. And I think people think, oh, six months in space, but that's a four and a half year commitment in order to get those six months in space. Very little of it where you sleep in your own bed every night. Um, so you have to choose that that's what you want to do. You have to set up a family that is willing to accept that as a, as a normal, healthy way for a family to exist through other ways of communicating, and we'll just extend that to when I'm in space.
4: Thank you so much for joining us, and all the best of luck on your next mission.
0: Uh, thank you. I'll take all the luck I can get. Thank you very much. <laughs> and luck we'll be is following
4: great. your mission as well. And, um, Thanks. Me too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Bye-bye.
4: Thank you. All right. Now, the last clip... Chose to save this one till the end because it's a great look into the future. These were two people who were there for a couple of days talking about future spacesuit design for the Constellation program and whatever comes out of that in the future. And I I thought that was really interesting hearing about how they're preparing as well as looking back in the past to see what to come up with in the future. So we are going to hear from a couple of the spacesuit designers. Engineers and Technicians, Mallory Jennings and Heather Paul. All right, so if you would like to introduce yourselves to the listeners.
9: Sure. My name is Heather Paul, and I'm a mechanical engineer from the NASA Johnson Space Center.
11: Jennings. I'm also a mechanical engineer at NASA Johnson Space Center with spacesuits.
4: So the two of you are working on the uh, future extravehicular units, the extravehicular mobility units, or the spacesuits that are going in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So what is important about the spacesuit that's needed for the future missions that are going on? What's so different about it compared to, like, a shuttle spacesuit?
9: That's a great question. The current extravehicular mobility unit or spacesuit that they're going to use on STS-135 and all of the prior missions for EVAs, that suit was specifically designed for microgravity use only. So it's really not a surface suit. So its mobility is... Its mobility is a very effective in microgravity, but if you were to try to wear that suit on the surface of the moon or Mars or someplace else, you'd probably be a little bit challenged. And so a lot of what we're doing in the future generation suit development is looking at more mobility, increased mobility, but keeping the suit lighter weight. And then Mallory and I specifically work on the life support designs, making sure that we're providing very good oxygen, cooling water, battery power, thermal conditioning, everything you need to survive in EVA no matter where you're going.
4: So I'll take it we learned a lot about those systems from the Apollo missions and what was, you know, what will you be taking back from the Apollo missions and what didn't totally work and you realize that you need to redesign?
11: So the great thing is that we're able to talk to the Apollo astronauts, um, watch the video footage, look at the commentary, and find out what really worked and what um, we can definitely improve upon. Um, The the mobility, um, the joints, especially in the lower body, the hips, the knees, the ankles, uh, all of that can be improved. And so we're looking at the Apollo footage, talking to those astronauts that are still with us and then um, making improvements from there.
4: So uh, obviously, you have to design these for multiple destinations, whether it be the Moon, Mars, or an asteroid, which all have different, uh, which all have different gravity effects on them. So, how do you take that into
9: account? Well, the great thing about spacesuit design is we're very, very adaptable to our environments, and a lot of that is a testament to all of the lessons learned over the, over the various projects and programs that we've developed spacesuits for. And so, really, the gravity environment um, plays a role, but variations in gravity we can really account for through our mobility agents and also somewhat with our life support systems but the difference between microgravity and a gravity surface that's where you're going to see the most variation in design
4: so when it comes to the actual uh suit itself and the life support system about how long do you need to take it into account for for the astronaut to be able to survive with it
11: so, right now, our current EVAs are between six and eight hours long. Um, we can go a little bit longer if we need to, and we're looking at, for future planetary um, operations, whether we want to do four-hour missions and then recharge or four hours and take a lunch break, um, those kind of options and have the flexibility, and we're trying to build a spacesuit that has that flexibility in its design and it's in, in its consumables so that we can do have flexible durations.
4: So, uh with the design of the suit, about how long do we expect it before that astronauts will be able to try it out and take it with them on missions?
9: Well, we're actually testing on the ground right now. We've been doing that for several years, and we have several spacesuit prototypes in work. In fact, we're testing back in Houston, um, I believe, this week. And so um, as far as testing goes, it'll be pretty much under research and development for some time now, especially as we wait to find out what specific destination we're going to. We're kind of planning for a few different options. But um, as far as when we're going to be using these in space, we'll have to wait and see.
4: So how would you even test these on Earth? Because obviously they're designed for use in space. So how do you actually test them to figure out their usability in space?
11: So there's different um, methods that we're used to test, um, whether it's the spacesuit itself, where we can take it um, underwater in the MBL, um, in our thermal vacuum chambers, or on the vomit comet, um, where we can do parabolas and test out in different um, gravity environments. And then for our life support system, we're able to, we're actually testing it right now in vacuum chambers and as a breadboard. And so right now it's huge and we're working on packaging it down. Um, and so that's a little easier to test on the
4: ground. So I know one big issue that I've spoken to a couple of astronauts, and one thing that they mentioned is dexterity of trying to use their fingers and their gloves to grab things. So how are you accounting for that? Because I know it's a mix of safety but usability at the same time.
9: Absolutely. The gloves are one of the more complex, aspe- complex aspects of the spacesuit. I'd say life support is definitely right there with it, and it's your really primary thing that you need. But the gloves, when they're specifically in microgravity EVAs, they're using their gloves their hands, as their hands and their feet, so they're free-floating. Everything that they're doing is with their hands, moving down and up and down the space station truss, you know, handling the hardware. And so the glove design is really, really critical. You want to have a very good flip, a very good glove fit because if you imagine that your hands are operating as your hands and your feet, then you're really wearing essentially a pair of shoes on your hands and we all know what it's like to wear a bad pair of shoes. You end up getting blisters and it's just really uncomfortable. And for 6 to 8 hours long, you don't want to put an astronaut in that situation. And so glove sizing is something that we've been working on in glove mobility for years. We've been continuously updating our designs and looking at ways to make it much more comfortable for the crew members. And so we'll continue to do that. You're absolutely right. We have to trade off safety with comfort and safety with mobility, and safety always comes first.
4: So if people want to find out more about the work that's going on with these future spacesuits, where can they go to learn about that?
11: Yeah, um, go to the nasa.gov website um, and type in spacesuits, and you'll find all kinds of stuff about our current suits um, and then some of our future suits that we're working on. Um, Also, you can tune in to, um, we go out to the desert um, for a program called Desert Rats. Um, It'll be coming up later this fall, and you can watch all of the suited operations,
9: the rovers and the robots and all of that. Yep, so that'll be in late August and early September. So if you just look on your search engine for NASA Desert Rats, you'll find it.
4: So looking back into the past, such as with the Apollo program and the shuttle program, to help with future design for when we move on to whatever destination is next. Any final thoughts on one year since STS-135?
5: What stunned me was, Mark, when we opened this up, you said it it, it, has it only been a year, and... uh... Yeah, a year unfortunately, you know, has gone by rather rapidly. Back then, we didn't really know. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, the shuttle program was ending. That was certain. This was the last time we were ever going to see this bird uh, sitting on the pad or any bird like it, and uh, it was sort of the end of an era. Uh, the the, uh, the orbiter fleet served served the country for about thirty years and uh, served it uh, with distinction. You know, we unfortunately lost two of them during that period of time due to our own own stupidity and and in and, and some ways and and not listening to what the machine was trying to tell us. But um, aside from the two accidents that we had, its career has been incredible. Uh, did it go ahead and did the shuttle program do what it was supposed to do? If you look back at the uh, what was written about it in, in the 1970s as it was as it was being uh, proposed, did it really f- you know make spaceflight cheaper and 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 all that? Probably not. But Mark, um, as uh, one of uh, Dr. Samuel Ting's favorite. Uh, uh, placards in his PowerPoint presentation is, you, know, you you start out an experiment trying to find out one thing, and in reality you find another. And in in some respects, I think the shuttle program as a whole kind of fit that 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 mold, where we set out to try to to, to go ahead and do certain things and so on, in uh, in low Earth orbit we actually. Did accomplish a lot. We we learned how to how to work in space. We learned how to build structures in space, like the uh, International Space Station, that uh, that large that large uh, complex that can be seen with the naked eye uh, as it or- orbits overhead. We learned how to how to service satellites in orbit, uh, like the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and it, but we essentially got the tools together. To build new structures and to build things in space, we didn't have that ability uh, with Apollo. We do now, uh, we know how to build build large large objects up there, which which will come in handy later on, as we reach out further in, in, into the stars. So, uh, the shuttle program taught us a lot, and um, I hope uh, it, its legacy will be respected and not uh, looked at uh, not looked at negatively. I
4: agree, even though it's been a year and we've had no American vehicles carrying humans in a year, and probably won't for another couple of years until SpaceX gets off the ground, or Virgin Galactic, or any of the private companies, I still think the fact that the shuttle did as much as it did over 30 years is spectacular. Like Katie Coleman said earlier, such an amazing vehicle built the International Space Station. It's released the Hubble Space Telescope, and so many other satellites that have, and experiments as well, that have changed the way that we view the universe as well as ourselves here on Earth. I think STS 135 was the culmination of all of those missions, from the failures that we had to the successes, and I think it left us on a very high note with such a great mission, flawless, and a perfect landing and a perfect mission. I think that was the perfect way to end the shuttle program and as much as i wish as it could have continued longer and i'm feeling all of us agree it served its purpose very well and i'm looking forward to whatever comes into the future knowing that the space shuttle helped innovate whatever is coming all right that brings this very special episode to its conclusion i'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight thank you for joining us g mcculka
5: Thank you, Sawyer, and again thank you to everybody that uh, turned a bolt or or touched the orbiters in any way, and thank you to to everyone that ever flew one of these uh, one of these special birds, and uh, a special condolences out to the family of Alan Poindexter who we lost uh, this past weekend.
4: Indeed, uh, condolences go out to the family of Dex, who was a veteran of STS-122 and 131, and who died on Sunday. July 1st in a jet ski accident. Thank you all well for joining us, Mark Ratterman.
2: I enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of good people, a lot of good recordings that you had there, and uh, thank you very much.
4: And thank you as well once again. Very glad you could rejoin us tonight, Gina Herlihy.
6: Absolutely. Thank you very much.
4: And of course, we'd like to thank you for listening and to any of the 200,000 plus people who listen to us on our live broadcast, a very, very Special thank you to everybody at Astronomy FM, especially Michael Forrester, who helped with the live broadcast of STS-135 getting us on the air, and we suggest that you listen to Astronomy FM and donate a little bit to them, because they're an absolutely great organization with great original programming, as well as simulcasting of shows such as Talking Space, so we suggest you listen to them as well. And of course, we'd like to thank you for joining us tonight, and as always... Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.